This week, we have Boethius, Oswald Spangler, Catholic Emancipation, and Charles and I have sold out, and we feel terrible about it, all the way to the bank. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House here with a Carolingian Charles Coulomb. Carolingian? You mean like Charlemagne? Oh, yeah. Well, today in real time is January 28th. That is the feast day of Blessed Charlemagne, who is my namesaint. So, yes, today I'm definitely Carolingian. But wait, there's more. Because tomorrow is Sunday, but Monday, when people will be listening to this, it is, for Anglicans and some Catholics, the Feast of Charles the Martyr, King Charles the Martyr. And if you were in London on this day, and some of our lucky friends are, you could go to Trafalgar Square and see the wreath laying uh, by the Royal Stuart Society, the Society of King Charles the Martyr, and the Royal Martyr Church Union of wreaths in honor of the murdered king. But wait, there's more. The next day, January 31st, is, are you ready? Can you dig it? What? The death day of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the first King Charles III. So the week is kind of Carolingian. But mind you, that's only Tuesday. Wednesday, February the 1st, that is an amazing day because it's the feast of both St. Ignatius of Antioch and for all of you Irishmen out there, St. Bridget, the Mary of the Gale. But then night falls. And when night falls, it'll be Candlemas Eve. And as our pre-show folks know, all the patrons, you have to take down the Christmas decorations on that magical, mystical night of Candlemas Eve. And then comes Candlemas itself. The end of Christmas with the wonderful Candle Mass, the Feast of the Purification of Our Lady, the Presentation of Our Lord in the Temple of Jerusalem. The following day, which this year will be Thursday, I guess, is the Feast of St. Blaise and the Blessing of the Throats. So don't forget to get your throats blessed. And then February, the uh, the uh, Sundays after uh, Epiphany will slide into Septuagesima, and we will be in Carnival season proper. And we could party like there's no tomorrow until Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras. And then at midnight, it all comes to a shrieking halt, and Lent begins, and then we begin the countdown to Easter. Hmm. But it's hard for me to let go of Christmas, I have to say. Yeah, same here. Same here. Hmm. I don't want to let go of Christmas. Well, then don't. I mean, the first glimmer of Christmas, you know, keep it up all, all the day around, all, all year round, keep up the tree and everything. Yeah, well, the tree is going to be a problem, Dress right? like Santa Claus when I go to work. Yeah, I would think. 
I would think would turn to a real fire hazard. Then I could keep heaps of holly and mistletoe. Have you ever dressed up as Santa Claus? Have Have you ever been Santa Claus anywhere? I have been, yes. Really? Two pillows. Yeah, but I was a lot thinner then. Took two pillows. Now I think I wouldn't need it. Now I could just put on the suit and, you know, do the whole Santa thing. If some reputable organization wanted you to do that and would pay you good money, would you do that? In a heartbeat. (laughs) Oh, that would be interesting. no, I I, uh, I would I would love playing Santa. You know, here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane, inspired by the Santa Claus Lane parade in the Hollywood of my childhood. And you know what I would be willing to do to show you how open and accepting I am of everything. I would be willing to be Santa in the Thanksgiving parade for Macy's in New York, and then fly to L.A to be Santa on the following Sunday in the Santa Claus Lane Parade down Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. And I would be willing, from that time until Christmas Eve, I would be willing to sit in a major metropolitan department store as Santa and, you know, talk to the kids and listen to their demands for stuff. What would you, well, how would you handle that? I'm wondering, like, would you say, oh, yeah, I mean, would you be, would you placate them or would you mess with them? I'd mess with them. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> of course. What do you think? <laughs> like, what would you say? Did you know what you would say? Like, yeah, oh, I, I know exactly what I would say. Do you really think you've been good enough to deserve that? You wouldn't say that. You would I, not I, say that. You, I you'd... think so, Santa. I think so. Well, we'll find out because, you know, I've got a list back over the North Pole. You're on it, and I'm going to find out whether you're naughty or nice. You're putting the fear <laughs> And you've still got X number of days until Christmas, my little lambkin. So you, if you kept a clean nose so far, you better keep it clean all the way through to Christmas. You know, I, I feel like... I feel bad because the way my mind works, what you're saying right now, I feel like this is the invention of a really lucrative racket where it's like (laughs) parents could pay you to put the fear of God into the kids and get them more well-behaved up to Christmas. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I can't can't tell you right now, kid, because I don't have the list in front of me. I have to go back and have a look look at the North Pole. But if you want me to bring anything better than coal to your house, you know you got to behave. Don't give mommy and daddy a problem. Yeah, well, dad's a drunk, and mommy runs around with half the seventh fleet. Yeah, well, you don't want to see what they're getting. I I can picture it right now. Actually, I I would happily be like your your like a. Uh... Santa's helper elf, and then like yeah. while you're with the kid, I'm collecting the cash from the parent. I can see it well, right it, now. You'd also have to collect the data from the parents. What What do you mean? Well, I mean they're lined up, right? Yeah. To for the kid to sit on my lap and yap at me, but you would have to go through the line and talk to the parents. You have to figure out a way that the parents could tell you quietly 
what the what the kid was, you know, what the deal was. Right. I see what you're saying. I could do that. They wouldn't I'm... pay for just abstract fear. Right. Right. That's true. Have you been smacking your baby sister around? Oh, that's right. There we go. Wow. And then, and then you have I'm a little. You'd have a little earpiece. You'd have a little earpiece. Yeah, piece. exactly. Uh, so let me get this straight. You've been smacking your little sister around, and yet you expect a GI Joe. This is actually such a good dia- idea. I wonder if anyone has has done this in the world. Well, I think it would be o- probably be open to lawsuits. <laughs> You know, and everybody today is afraid of of liability. So, well, what lawsuit though? I mean, you're doing what? Like, just have the parent sign some contract or something. Have a little, a little digital, little digital contract on the phone or something, and disclaiming all responsibility for any psychological harm (laughs) done the child. And then then you could just have at him. You know, (laughs) we just utter utter horror. I see. So we don't eat our vegetables. We don't feed the dog the way we promised we were going to when the puppy was bought. And yet we still expect toys. <laughs> you really are a dreamer, kid. You know, you've got 13 days left till Christmas. Okay? And I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You know, you, 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 you sash your parents. You won't feed the dog. You won't eat your vegetables. I'll make you a deal. If you will do those three things, then you may get something decent on Christmas. If not, sounds like coal time. Well, I think perhaps <laughs> I think perhaps the reason why this this hasn't happened is there might be reprisals. From old, from like when they get older and they find out they've been scammed. <laughs> well, well, you know that's interesting too because it would reinforce belief in Santa in a very real way. And then when they have the talk about there not being a Santa, well, how did that one Santa know that I used to hit my sister? Well, the truth is, son, we told him. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane, laughing and jumping, hopping and something, carrying for you a chain. That's not how it goes. No, it's not how it goes at all. No. Bad Santa. Definitely bad Santa. Um, but I would actually, I, 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 I love Santa Claus and the whole mythos, the North pole, the elves, everything else. All right. Are you ready for the memes of production? Nationalize the memes of production for the common good. All right. Uh, we don't really have some memes. We just have some, some comments I'd like to read actually. Um, so, uh, one patron, um, through the uh, the messaging system, he said um, the Renner Ronner conundrum. So we we talked about who would you rather fight with, uh, Carl yeah. Renner or Carl Ronner, right? Yeah. Um, so regarding that, I think I tried to find Carl Reiner and join his squad. 
Also problems, oh. but at least it'd be fun. Yeah, I, I would take Carl Reiner over either Colorado or Colorado. I'd take Carl Reiner like that. Yeah. So, I like that. I'd take Louie Nye like that. <laughs> Shelly right. Brumman. Who's that? Uh, Lenny Bruce, maybe. Shelly Berman. Who are these people? Oh, come on. Mort Saul. Oh, okay. What? Okay. I would take any Jewish comedian over either Karl Renner or Karl Rana. Hmm. Okay. Um... One was a one was a, uh, a convinced enemy of the Catholic faith. The other was a Jesuit. Or did I repeat myself? No, no, that's accurate. Can confirm. All right, all right. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes. Uh, all right. What else you got? All right. Angela says one reason why I love about. Uh, or what I love about Off the Menu is its countercultural promotion of leisure. We diehard fans enjoy the historical t- topics, it's true, but we really love Charles's delightful ramblings, which to the patient listener always yield an anecdote or profound insight about life. The intro with its Art Deco evocation of the Jazz Age symbolizes this ethos. Which makes Tumblr House unique. Wow, that's really. Thank you very, very much. We do our best to maintain standards in a world gone mad. Yeah, so, thank you, Angela. Uh, just remember, just because the world is going insane doesn't mean we have to go with it. So, um, our the segment on dark academia was quite a hit. I think everybody really loved it. Everybody had a ton of fun. If you're just joining us from the the Crusade channel, highly recommend finding the Dark Academia section. Um, but um, someone I I couldn't find the comment, but somebody had had mentioned that what about Dark Macadamia, part of the Big Almond? <laughs> <laughs> big Almond's tentacles are everywhere. <laughs> dark Macadamia. <laughs> then there's Light Macadamia, presumably, and Romantic Macadamia. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Big Almond, who's the real author of all our woes, you you, you just can't trust them. Yeah. Uh, But anyhow, Ryan says, I think I've inadvertently been promoting dark academia. I got all my friends to show up to our theology class in jacket and tie, and the class began with prayer. Unthinkable. Mm. Well done, Ryan. Yeah. If you're well-dressed against the classical background, it seems like you're already halfway to dark academia. Yeah. Also, if you could string two thoughts together. That's right. Telltale sign of subversive thinking. All right. Um, time for State of the Week. Oh, yeah. We are getting to the nitty-gritty. We're almost – we're approaching 40. I actually had to – do fancy things on Excel sheet to see what's what we got left. But we got a lot of, you know, we've got through, you know, a lot of the sort of the junk states, you know what I mean? I mean, New Jersey, Illinois, 
Um, <laughs> you know, states. It's sort of the dumpy states, you know what I mean? Rhode Island. Dumpy states. Uh, <laughs> Rhode Island. And what we have left, I mean, what, what do we have left if you think? I mean, we haven't done Pennsylvania, New York, Texas. Of course, the Golden State, California. Am I right or am I right? Saving the best for last. I have one. <laughs> I, I have two words for you, smart guy. You ready? Ready. Paramus Mall. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying, right? The junkie, the sort of the dumpy, the dumpy states, you know, the, the real, what are you talking about real dumpy? throwaway you, states. You've never even been to the Paramus Mall. <laughs> I bet you've never had a Callahan's hot dog in your life. And yeah, I don't so intend to. And, and I don't intend to. Um, all right. All right. I want you to fantasize now. Okay. This is a mental exercise, like a guided meditation. You with me? Is this a fantasy or a nightmare? Are you sure this is a fantasy? Okay. Go on. It's a fantasy. All right. You're walking down the street. It's an urban setting. But it's not hugely urban. That's because it's Hoboken, New Jersey. You're walking down the street. In one hand, you've got a bottle of Coke. The other hand is wrapped around a hot dog. It's a Callahan's hot dog. Every now and then, you take a bite and you say, Mmm, this is so good. It doesn't <laughs> taste like horse meat at all. <laughs> you take a, sw- a swig of the Coke. And another bite. You keep walking down the... It's summer, so it's kind of hot. And the, your T-shirt is sticking to your flesh. And you can smell the slaughterhouse, the Essex packing plant. And you're happy because you're home in Jersey. And you feel safe that you're not forced to go to New York and nightclub all night. And now... You've just turned the corner, and you're in your your duplex of your your home built in 1905. Originally, as a single family home, now cut into two. And you open the uh, the door. You go up the stairs because you've got the top half, not the bottom. And you sit down in your overstuffed chair with all the dust flies up because you don't really dust very much. You finish your hot dog. You finish your drink, and you think. Thank God I live in Jersey. What a vivid image you paint for us, Charles. Um, Don't you feel better now? I feel like those, those vivid image, but I feel like the feelings you projected on me were a little... Little artificial, little little superimposed there, but um, artificial. You just finished a Callahan's hot dog. You wouldn't get that outside of Jersey, and it doesn't taste like horse meat, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you know, wh- wh- where does it where where does a Callahan's hot dog rank uh, in terms of your all time favorite hot dogs, Charles? Yeah, because I know you're such a a hot dog connoisseur. Well, there's that. I would say that it's probably better than a Dodger dog. But uh, not not necessarily quite as good as Der- as uh, Der Wiener Schnitzel. Okay. I love I love me some Wiener Schnitzel. So that's 
that's good to hear. Gives you some credibility. Um, it's so you've actually been to a Dodger game. Yeah, I've been to a Dodger game. Oh, okay. I well, I know you sports aren't your thing, so it just uh, no, it's they're just not. But it was it was before they left Brooklyn. But um, I, no, I'm pretty what? sure you. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't born then. They left Brooklyn in '58. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, but it does sound like a properly lame response. You know, you've been to a Dodger game? Oh yeah. Of course, it was before they left Brooklyn. But so there's sort of a letdown there. You wouldn't have had a Dodger dog if you'd been if you'd seen them in the old Dodger Stadium in Brooklyn. All right, time for State of the Week. State of the Week this week, Nebraska. Ha, 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 ha. Well, you know what they say. When it's corn husking time in Nebraska, when it's corn uh, husking time in Nebraska, when it's corn husking time, when it's corn husking time, then it's corn husking time in Nebraska. Is that how it is? Is that how that goes? Well, that's how it goes. Uh, many years ago, I knew uh, Bishop Flavin of Lincoln, Nebraska, which incidentally is the state capital. He was, at that time, one of the very few really orthodox bishops in the United States. But in his office, he had a wonderful poster that showed a snow-covered cornfield with the caption, Ski Nebraska. And that's the first thing you got to understand about Nebraska. It has some rivers like the Missouri and the Platte, and it's flat. And it's heavily agricultural. But don't let that fool you. There's a lot more to Nebraska than meets the eye. Firstly, in the capital city of Lincoln, you can see the rather ugly new cathedral, the somewhat prettier old cathedral. Uh, the Diocese of Lincoln is still very solid, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, but the state capital is a very pretty building, very art deco, and moreover, it is the home of the only unicameral legislature in the 50 states. They have only one chamber, one house in Nebraska. Um, to go beyond Lincoln, you would go to the big city, which is Omaha. And Omaha is a nice enough place. It's got some interesting architecture. Um, probably the most important part of Nebraska, other than that, is around Concordia, which was settled by French Canadians. And you can still see the uh, you can still see a lot of the evidence of that. Omaha had a lot of Czechs, and there are still some remnants of the Czech settlements there. There are a few Indian reservations that are worthwhile, the Poncas and a few others, I think. And it's uh, you know the usual thing in the Midwest. Any county courthouse is usually, unless it's modern, most of the county courthouses are very impressive and worth seeing. And in the countryside. You will see some impressive Catholic churches, especially those built by the Germans from Russia. And that pretty much is all I've seen of Nebraska. Isn't um, isn't the, the um, FSSP mothership in Nebraska, if I'm not mistaken? It is indeed. There are seminaries there, but I haven't been there as yet, so I can't tell you anything about it. Hmm. Yeah, reminded of that because I remember uh, I think 
saw a comment you did Oklahoma a couple months ago. Um, someone said, "How could he not mention uh, Clear Creek? Um, I think it's Monastery or Abbey." Monastery, um, yeah, uh, Clear Creek Abbey, very easily because I've never been there. Yeah, but I will be there in May uh, for a conference on Empress Zita, Servant of God, Empress Zita. So. If you're in the Midwest, if you're in Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, uh, Missouri, even Arkansas, and you really are keen on seeing me other than in this setting, uh, you'll have your chance in May at the uh, Empresita Conference at the uh, Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma. That's pretty cool. Do you know anyone else going there, uh, speaking? Um, Do you know anything about that? Yeah. yeah, Princess um, Galitsyn, who's uh, Habsburg, married a, a Prince Galitsyn, and the Archduke Rudolf, who was Zita's grandson. Hmm. Cool. Uh, the, prin- the, the princess was her great-granddaughter, and they spent a good deal of time together. All right. You're getting real tight with the Habsburgs, Charles. <sighs> Only as their chronicler. <laughs> you know, people ask me, do you ever get tired of uh, writing about uh, the Habsburgs? And I say, well, could be worse. I could be writing about the Kennedys. How would you go about doing it? Let, let, let's say somebody was like, paid you like $5 million to do that. Would you do that? Sure. $5 million, You bet. But I wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do, as I enjoy writing about the Habsburgs. Would you... Would you skew the angle that you would write that favorably? Like, would you not mention the um, the freeway thing, for example? Would you leave that out? No, I'd, ha- I'd have to. If I was going to write an honest history of the Kennedys, I'd have to talk about that. So it'd have to be honest. Okay. Uh, New Bedford was ruined by, uh, you know, by the Kennedys. I'd have to talk about how Mr. Pantages of the Pantages movie theater chain fame was ruined by Joe Kennedy. And I'd have to talk about Joe Kennedy's uh, long relationship with the very fine actress, Gloria Swanson, and the mansion he bought for her in Hollywood, which is now used by the Cowell Rider Astrological Foundation. So, you know. Wow. Okay. What? <laughs> All right. Um, anything else well, going I'd have on? To write about yeah. Joe's bootlegging. Sounds like it would be a real uh, amazing biography, one that their the Kennedy family would really appreciate a lot. Uh, that they would appreciate it, but I have to say one word in favor of Robert Kennedy Jr. Okay. His lawsuit, his lawsuit against the state of New York for enforcing vaccines on its employees has been decided by the New York State Supreme Court in his favor. And so all the state of New York is no longer allowed to discriminate against non-vaccinated employees, non-COVID vaccinated. That's pretty cool. The court, it is very cool. Wow. So credit where credit's due. That would go into the Kennedy book as well. All right. Little little factoid there. All right. Um, 
We're going to do a little pause for station identification. Um, Off the menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. All right. Um, Was that station identification? mm Mm-hmm. Channel channel identification? How do you feel about that? How do I feel about station identification? Well, if you're going to be on a channel, you should identify it, I would think. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I do another podcast on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, The Never-Ending Struggle. So, you know, we're all, we'll wait to, to discuss the whole issue of selling out later, but Speaking as a 1960s person, I want you to know that my ideals are not for sale, although they do rent at reasonable rates. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this was a no-brainer, honestly. Um, I mean, for one, the fact-finding mission in the Bahamas this spring was not going to happen. Like, there, the money wasn't there, so we needed to come up with the money somehow. Um, I mean, we can't really lift off the gift shop like um, continually each year. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't work like that. You know, it's always we have a bonanza maybe once or so a year. Then our suppliers have to lay low for a while. I mean, um, supply chain problems, you know, happen sometimes. So we can't take that for granted, you know, when it happens. Well, I mean, you, you know, they can only close off the 210 and force traffic through downtown Arcadia a few times a year. You can't do it regularly. Yeah, I well, I mean, that happens. I don't know how what connection you're sort of like making here, but um, yeah. All, all I'll say is that I know that the uh, the California Department of Transportation was beginning to get a bit squiffed that the same section of the 210 kept getting blocked off for repair work that the department had not authorized. It's been really rainy. You know, there's been potholes. It's just, you know, it's really a mess. And uh, I personally am really in favor of it. Um, I mean, that you think people should stay off the 210 going through Arcadia when it rains. Yeah, it's really rough Um, until it's repaired. um, I think they should. So they should just go through. Hunting to drive through downtown Arcadia, despite the Lot many safer. outages of uh, many outages of traffic lights. Huntington's a very fine street to drive through. Um, you know, you can see all the restaurants at uh, you know Restaurant Row. Um, so, highly recommend it. Uh, yeah. If you're not driving a truck. Um. Well, look. I don't know anything about that. Okay, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I would just say, I would just say that ever since Chief Clancy came in, the uh, number of times the 210 has gotten blocked off and traffic's been forced down Huntington Drive have ballooned. I'm just, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just, you know, it, it hasn't escaped my notice and it hasn't escaped Sacramento's notice either, hence the jumping up and down. But I can understand why you'd suddenly develop supply problems if the 210 was no longer blocked off on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. The, the, the supply trucks can't get to us, right? I mean, it's, it's a logistics problem. 
Um, yeah, well, I, I can see that. They're, they're able to go directly through to their actual destinations instead of being <laughs> going down high to drive <laughs> and getting shaken down. <laughs> Although I'm told we can't call them shakedowns anymore. <laughs> <laughs> See, I you know one thing I, I resent bitterly it, is the reputation Arcadia has acquired of being a corrupt little burg. I, I I think that's very very. Unfair. I resent that too. I uh, inspections I feel like are are a good standard policy. Um, you yeah. know, I mean during well, um, I, yeah. Go. I I think it's interesting though that the traffic cops uh, now have orders to shoot to kill. Yeah. Speaking though, all kidding aside, uh, you heard about what happened in Memphis with that fellow who was uh, apparently killed by five cops. Yes, I saw the video. Um, I've been reading all about it. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't have problems like that in Arcadia. But it's interesting to me that all five police were black and the media are now saying it was racism. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. Van Jones, our, our buddy, Van Jones. It's the ide- ideology what? they serve, the systemic racism. I know, I know. Okay. Well, I think Van Jones is a racist. I think he's he hates blacks, he hates whites, he hates everybody. He's a, he's a moron. And, and I mean that in a nice way. Well, you know, th- th- that's such a good racket because how can you ever disprove that they're systemic racism like you, you know can't like, you can't so it's literally like an eternal uh racket that you've created for yourself so whatever dude kind of like driving through arcadia but what what van is is a victim of is systemic stupidity you see and he's a prime example how do you rid the system of systemic stupidity When morons are listened to as though they were people with brains, you've got a problem. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how we haven't said that word before. Systemic stupidity. Because that- Systemic stupidity. That's what our country and the West suffer from. You know, you, you talk about looters and burners of buildings as mostly peaceful rioters. Really? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're a news creature, or an academic, or a government person, and you use that expression for them, if I burned your house in response to the recent killing in Memphis, would that be a mostly peaceful protest? Now, I'm not talking about someone else's business. Your home. Yeah, or or you know the other way you have said it that really uh, resonated with me is uh, you posed the question, how oppressed do I have to be, in order for it to be okay for me to burn your house down? Yeah, right. How oppressed? And the answer for anybody who isn't utterly brain dead uh, is never. You will never believe that I am sufficiently oppressed that it's okay for me to burn down your house. And all of these moronic tools in uh, government, academia, and media who say that it is are just that. 
And the, the, the proof that we're stupider than they are is that they're in the positions they're in. Systemic stupidity. How how do these people not get laughed off the block, you know? I think Liberace was right. I do too. <laughs> okay, well, what did he say? <laughs> We're just going to let it hang there. <laughs> no explanations, ladies and gentlemen. Liberace was right. And you know, I would suggest... That we start turning that into graffiti, bumper stickers, no explanations. Liberace was right. And let people like Van and the other morons that run the show, let them try to figure out what anybody means by, I'll say it again, Liberace was right. Yeah. yeah he absolutely. All right. Um <laughs> Well, I don't know either, ladies you, and gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, you, you just found for us the um, the title of the episode. Total clickbait. Imagine people who who would see the title. It's like, oh, wow. What did what did, what are they saying about Liberace? What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> Liberace was right. I, I, could, I could see it. You know, the utility of this phrase, ladies and gentlemen, it could go viral if we all play our part. You know, um, um, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you're here before this congressional committee. What is your response to the assertions of Senator Kaminsky? My response? Liberace was right, Senator. You know, I know what inspires this from you. I know exactly what what is you're drawing from in your subconscious. Um, well, it what's is, that? Tina Delgado is alive. <laughs> That's exactly what you're drawing from. <laughs> because it's this question that no one, they never answered. And this was going on for decades. <laughs> what do we know and believe? Tina Delgado is alive, alive! <laughs> well... And you know, I've kept faith. I still believe that Tina Delgado is alive. I don't care what they say. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are either just joining us or have retained your Saturday, uh, Tina Delgado, back when I was a kid and Vinny was an infant, we had a, uh, a radio man in the L.A. area called The Real Don Steele. And he was on several stations uh, with a top 10 show starting in the 60s. But at intervals throughout the day, he would be, he would suddenly, apropos of nothing, utterly random moments, suddenly yell, what do we know and believe? And then he would play this hysterical sounding woman shrieking, Tina Delgado is alive, alive! And he never explained what that was supposed to mean. Um, there are several possible urban legends. His wife, after he died, said he never told her, so she didn't know what it was all about. Uh, some people claim that Tina Delgado was a, uh, a teenager back in the 60s who was walking along a railroad track listening to a transistor radio and was so absorbed in KHJ, the radio station that 
Sheila's on, that um, she got run over by a train. And so it was considered something of a martyr to uh, rock and roll. I don't know how true that is. It may, it may be a complete urban legend. I have no idea. Um, but at any rate, whether it's true or not, I want everyone who's listening to know that I've kept the faith and still believe that Tina Delgado is alive. And you're right. I think that probably that is what is behind Liberace was right. No. And I, I, I think that like the Tina Delgado issue, I think uh, Liberace's uh, correct understanding is something that we all have to simply accept on faith. Okay, I'll take it. All right. All right. What uh, do we don't believe? <laughs> Liberace was right. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, I I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know. Too much fun. Anyway, let's move along. Move along. We've all got homes to go to. Move along. What do you got here? All right. Um, Nicholas. Nicholas um, says, Hello, gentlemen. I've noticed a recurring discussion on the show that as a society, we no longer dress well and how uh, that should change. I've agreed ever since I watched Cary Grant movies as a child. However, I imagine I've never had the courage to dress any better on a daily basis than a polo shirt in either slacks or shorts. I'm wondering if it is a good idea to try to wear a jacket and tie more regularly, and if so, any ideas on how to make such a change to one's look, since it is a little daunting when everything is always casual. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I made the change in high school, and you can too. Um, you do it by doing it and you laugh off any critiques you hear and in a short time people get used to it and then they begin emulating you it's really that simple uh, now mind you one of the things that helped me make the adjustment was finding out that people generally do bartenders did not card guys wearing jackets and ties and that was Quite a discovery for me. But the biggest thing behind it all for me was that uh, it's both a negation of the countercultural revolt of the 60s and a bit of a tribute to my late father, to be honest. Uh, he's the man I acquired my sense of style from. And I would simply suggest to you that dressing well, dressing like a gentleman to the best of your ability, which used to be the aspiration, you know, even of construction workers, is in a sense a personal declaration of independence from the mob and from our masters. It's a quiet thing. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to boast about it. It's just, you know, you don't dress like a ragbag anymore. That's all. Hmm. You, don't, you don't have to make a big deal about it. And you certainly should not disapprove of anyone else's sartorial choices. Um, that's, that's up for them to decide. See, this is exactly, ladies and gentlemen, where freedom of choice really should apply. You know, you should be able to wear whatever is A, legal, B, tasteful, and C, appropriate. Um, 
And if other people don't like it, well, let them stop paying your clothing bills. It's amazing how when you reduce things to money, people shut up. Hmm. You know, I'll wear whatever you like if you'll pay for it. Uh, but see, above all, there's the question of self-confidence. The very way that the question is framed shows the fear of what other people think. So let me put it to you that other people really don't care what you think in these areas. So why should you care what they think? To put this yet another way, when I was 13 or 14, my father asked me, when you go into a party and you meet a group of people you've never met before, do you feel very self-conscious and worried about the impression you'll make? And I said, well, yeah. I said, well, everyone else at the party feels precisely the same way, so you don't have to. They're doing all the work for you. Don't be afraid to be yourself. The people of my generation would say that, but they didn't mean it. And we were a very conformist bunch. I say we in the larger sense because that was one thing I never, one trap I never fell into. And not to boast too much, but people, uh, many people who I knew back then and perhaps have fallen out of touch with, have gotten back in touch with me in recent years, have said, How did you know? Well, how did I know, in other words, that the world was going to go the way it did? Because I would talk about it back then, the way I saw things going. So, well, a combination of smart parents and a grasp of how life works. Anyway, I digress. Uh, dress and dress boldly. Absolutely. Um, for me, I don't know. I'll just talk about my personal plan because I, I do want to do this. It's been a little slower for me, um, but I I was trying to start with a kind of a happy middle ground, except not quite. Um, I really want a waistcoat, and I'm going to buy a waistcoat. So that way, um, yeah, exactly. That's what, what Charles has on. So that that's basically the vest. Um, and so that way I have a tie. I feel, I feel like it looks really, really sharp, you know, and like for me, at least in California for, for the summer, it's a little bit, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it's not 90 degrees outside and I have a suit on. Um, so, but I do want to do the suit too. Um, but I, yeah. That's why God made seersucker and linen suits. I, I guess I, I also feel insecure about, I don't know, like, like I need to get fitted for a suit, whereas like a waistcoat, like I can just like, I can, I can just buy one, you know, like with a size. Yeah, you don't have to get, you don't really have to get too terribly fitted. And you know, you go to Hollywood suit outlet, uh, and they'll make you look like a million bucks for a lot less than that. Five suits for something like six hundred. That's still a lot of. I mean, yeah, I, that I do want to do that. I do want to do that. Absolutely, that's a that's a good deal. Um, it's a great deal. Plus, it comes with with uh, uh, accompaniments, ties, and so forth. But that that's the other thing. Perhaps um, I'll try to. I don't know. Perhaps represent a lot of people's um, hesitation for it. Is I think perhaps some people might feel like if you only have like one jacket or two jackets, like. Uh, 
kind of, um, I mean, you're poor enough to only have two jackets. You're not actually, you're posing. Let's just say that. Let's just put that out there. I know that's hugely flawed logic, but yeah, let's well, just it deal is. with it. I mean, it's like saying if you're wearing underwear, you're posing. Um, goodwill is God's will. Secondhand stores are your friend. There is the science to going to secondhand stores. You go to secondhand stores in good neighborhoods. So to give you an example, Pasadena has a wonderful secondhand store called, I think it's the Treasure Shop or the Treasure Chest or something like that, which is run by the Assistance League of Southern California. Who are the members of that thing? Very rich, old Pasadena people. And you would not believe in days gone by when I didn't have the dough to blow at Hollywood suit outlet. You would not believe the extraordinary deals I got there. So, you know, the, the look for the upscale uh, secondhand stores, you'd be surprised. You could look like a million bucks and not really spend very much money at all. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of that. Now you can say uh, you're putting on airs if you can't afford it. Poppycock. Utter poppycock. If anything, it's the poor who should feel they've got the most right to look good. Because the wealthy don't have to put much thought into it. And as you see, by the way, they ragbag around. Look at the Academy Awards these days. They don't put any thought into it at all. They just, you know, spend, spend tons of money on garbage. No, 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 no. If you're poor, it's a great way of asserting your humanity. Dare I say it, your equality. You see, just because you're poor, you shouldn't feel you've got to look like a ragbag. Leave that to your betters, like Tom Cruise. Let them look like scum. You've got a right to look the very best you can. And I suggest you exercise it. And if anyone says, well, you know what? Let them dress in burlap and cellophane if they want. Myself, I don't think burlap and cellophane is a good look on anybody, but that's just me. Uh, you know, I'll <clears throat> take this opportunity to repeat something that I'm really hot on. Um, so it's an important part of our mission as Catholics because of the relationship between the true and the good and the beautiful. And it's actually kind of a pet peeve of mine because there's kind of so much noise when it comes to finding out what's true that oh, it's like, okay, people get lost in what might be a labyrinth or, or whatever. Um, but the beautiful, in my opinion, should be self-evident. You know, like in order for you to choose things that are just so ugly, what has happened? You know what? Do you know what I mean? Like, what yeah. has happened? Like, well, it, means you, it means you've you've given you you've surrendered your sensibilities to a corrupt regime. It, it, it's truly like a golem situation. From Lord of the Rings, where Gollum doesn't like the taste of nice things anymore, and he doesn't like like the sun, and he doesn't no. like good things, like, and you can't really explain it other than you've just sort of, 
I guess, orientated your will a different direction or something? I, I don't know. But um, the affinity toward ugliness really bothers me than, than sort of people abiding by lives or living by lives. Because the ugliness thing, that's a huge well, part of I the mean, devil's work. That You see this today. I hate to say this. You, you see this today in the whole ugly model movement. Oh, yeah, those pictures you've showed me were horrible. <sighs> I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. 20, 30 years ago, you had models were, shall we say, immodestly dressed, but they were good looking. Yeah. Now they're still immodestly dressed, but they're hideous. Yeah. And that, I mean, not that immodest dress is a good thing. It's not my point. Yeah. But the fact that we have, we're not even able to say, this is a beautiful girl, this is not, you know, oh, will you make her feel bad? Well, if she feels that bad about it, and she shouldn't, and she shouldn't, because I'm sure she has other qualities, but if she feels that bad about it, let her diet and exercise. I mean, I'm a fat tub myself. And if I were that concerned about it, well, then I'd be working out and doing all, all sorts of uh, things that people do to make themselves look better. I could care less. So I get my exercise walking. But you don't get chins like this off eating lettuce. Yeah. What else we got in the old... Uh, toolbox yeah uh we got a bunch of uh questions from jonathan so jonathan says uh heyo vincenzo and charles i am a newish listener and love the podcast feel like you both are those really cool congenes that you get to see a couple of times a year and when you do see them you end up staying up late and polishing off a gallon of dago red while you solve all the world's problems that was, that's what comes of coming over to Uncle Arturo's Christmas party. I, Same. We know who you are. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I really, that line really makes me feel good, Jonathan, because I know Charles and I have both been in those, in that sort of social context many times. And it's, I know exactly what you're trying to hit there. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Um. So, thanks for... Congeniality is not a bad thing, if you ask me. Yeah. So, thanks for that, and salute till I see you at the next go-around. Two questions for Charles. First question. Doing a lot of research about the Peninsular War for my thesis. So, I am fairly, I'm fairly familiar with Old Nosy, the Duke of Wellington, and his tactical thumping of the French. However, I am not so familiar with Sir Arthur's time as the prime minister, and his role in Catholic emancipation. Wellington was not a Catholic himself, yet he was a strong supporter of Catholic emancipation, and even staked his career on getting the Catholic Relief Act of 1829 approved. Why do you think that Catholic emancipation was so important to him? What significance does this have in the history of Catholicism and England? Well, I think a number of things. One, uh in the fight against Napoleon, uh, he fought alongside a lot of Catholics, uh, French, Spanish, Italian, uh, 
we would call today Belgian German. Uh, Austria, of course, was one of Britain's major allies in the struggle with Napoleon. Uh, the Peninsular War, of course, he got to know Catholicism very well. And then in in Ireland, uh, you know, it's 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 an interesting uh, paradox. But Ireland, up until 1802, had a separate parliament from Great Britain with its own House of Lords and its own House of Commons. Well, the Irish nobility, of whom the Wellesleys were one family, tended to be more pro-Catholic than the Irish House of Commons. The reason for that was that the House of Commons could only be voted for by Protestants. And they were mostly Orangemen and working-class Protestants. Well, not working-class, but bourgeois Protestants from Dublin who just hated Catholics. But the House of Lords in Ireland, many of the noble families, although they were all Protestant descent lords, they had Catholic branches of those families with whom they were on good terms. So the irony is that the Irish House of Lords tended to be much more pro-Catholic than the House of Commons. So I think all of these things played a part in his commitment to um, Catholic emancipation. And as I say, he had fought alongside Catholics in the great struggle against Napoleon. Interestingly enough, the next big challenge of his career, which actually ended it, was the Reform Act of 1832, which basically uh, the, the representation of the House of Commons of various towns and so on had not changed since the Middle Ages. And as a result, you'd had a lot of places like Birmingham, which had not existed back then, which had become big cities, and thus were not represented in Parliament at all, because they had been nothing when the rules were laid out. And then you had a bunch of what were called rotten boroughs, and these were towns that were represented in Parliament, but had few or no inhabitants. And generally, the member of Parliament for those boroughs was chosen by the biggest landowner. So the idea of the Reform Act of 1832 was to rectify that situation. So the Duke of Wellington opposed it very, very strongly. He wouldn't hear of it. And public pressure got greater and greater and greater until finally he made it a point of contention in 1832. And uh, he was talking in the cabinet about how they would resist it to the bitter end. And one cabinet member who was kind of deaf said to the man sitting next to him, when Wellington said, we're not going to go this way, we're going to resist it to the bitter end, the deaf cabinet minister said to the fellow next to him, what does he say? He says, we're going out of office. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end of the Duke of Wellington's career. But he, he was a, a fascinating character, without a doubt. Hmm. All right. Um Second question. I'm saddened to report that my favorite pub was closed over the summer. It was like a second home to me. Other regulars, the bartenders, the owner, and I were like friends. Shoot, even the weekend crowd was bearable. It really felt like the old Cheers show sometimes. When the pub closed, I fell into a deep depression. My friends keep saying silly things like, there are plenty of other bars out there, or there are other fish in the sea. But they just don't get it. Good bars don't happen anymore like they used to. 
It's been a few months, so I'm starting to feel ready to get back on the market again and find a new pub, but I am just unsure what to look for. I recently picked up the Muse in the Bottle, and I'm grateful for many stories and anecdotes that have greatly helped in my morning. One story, Death of a Bar, by Tom Lovero, hits particularly close to home. Not only does it feel like my favorite pub has closed, but it feels like the entire concept and experience of a great bar is something that is fading away in America these days. So any advice for getting out, uh, getting back out there to find a new regular haunt again? What kind of things do you look for in a great bar? Many thanks to you both in prayer for Charles, prayers for Charles's health. Salute e centani. Oh, well, that's good to hear you speaking your native tongue. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, if I were going into a new place, give me a town, Vincenzo, any town you want in the United States. Anywhere. Oakland. Oakland, California. All right. That's a challenge. <laughs> let's see. I, I will tell you what I would do. I would go to Oakland. California, I'm looking it up on the web, California, oldest bars. First thing I would look for. Pine Old's last first and last chance saloon, located on the shore of the estuary in Oakland, California, opened June 1st, 1884. Since then, patrons of all walks of life have been enjoying our spirits and tastefully abrasive atmosphere. So I would check out Heinold's. Um, the, uh, now they've got this top 10 best oldest bar. Heinold's comes up first. There's the saloon, merchant saloon, the alley, boathouse. Uh, I don't want to go into San Francisco. I just want to stick into Oakland. Yeah. Uh, boathouse. The Cafe Van Cleef. Um, yeah, so I, I, I would, in of this bunch here, I would definitely check out Heinold's First and Last Chance Saloon. And then I would also look for Oakland, California, Irish Pub. And what, what does that give me? Well, Heinold's pops up again. Uh, but there's also McNally's Irish Pub and Slancha Irish Pub. So I'd look at those. Now I'd look up English Pub. Uh, the Seawolf Public House shows up. McNally's, again, the, the Irish pubs, uh, but uh, the Seawolf, the Commonwealth Cafe and Pub in Oakland. Uh, London Bar and Grill. Kensington, uh, well, that's pretty far away from there. So there's Slancher Schmidt's Pub. 
Okay, so, yeah, you, so they're, they're it's possible to look small up. Number. It's possible look. to look up on the internet, right? So yeah. So what I would do is I would look up oldest bar first. Oldest bars, plural. And then I would look up Irish, English, British, and Scots pubs, and then I would try them on. That's what I would do. Yeah. The um, now, if you really oh, and then another thing you can look at under is dive bars. Hmm. Uh, uh, how about yeah. um? Let, let's get so you've handed you've handled the logical side of this. Like, okay, what should you do? But what about the emotional side? I mean, is there going to be another, you know, another good pub out there that can fit the bill? What would you have to say about that? It would depend on where you are. But, I mean, you, you again, it's sort of like re, when you're rebounding after breaking up with somebody. Um, hmm. You know, you take it easy. And then you go into a place. Are you comfortable? Does the bartender greet you? Is he friendly or she? What are the people like? And that's something you just have to go in and sit around and watch and sit and drink and hmm. hang out and see what see what results. And you may find that one or two or three aren't to your taste, so you move on and look at another one. Hmm. But eventually, I'm sure you'll find something. Um, I mean, I, uh, I have to uh, remark at this point, of course, at the first cabin in beautiful downtown Arcadia, home of Pat O'Brien and the Priests of Love, the house band. Um, Bob, the bartender, and unfortunately, Phil, the English bartender, is dead. But he was great. And Bonnie, got to mention her. Um, it, was a, uh, it was a smoke easy for many years. It was no longer. And half the Arcadia PD hang out there. Cop bars are often, often pleasant places. Well, do you have any favorite pubs in the LA area? I have a lot of favorite pubs in the LA area. Is Griffin's considered a pub? Uh, yes, Griffin's of Kinsale. I would definitely recommend. They're in uh, uh, South Pass, uh, the Old Town Pub in uh, in uh, Pasadena itself. Um. The uh, the Robin Hood in Ireland's Thirty Two in the San Fernando Valley, Molly Malone's and uh, Tom Bergen's in uh, the LA area. As far as just bars go, per se, uh, well, the first cabin, as I've said, uh, there's some restaurant bars like the Derby in Arcadia or Musso and Frank's in Hollywood. Uh, King Eddie's Saloon at the Edward the Fifth Hotel in downtown uh, L.A., right there on Fifth Street, our very own Skid Row. Hmm. Um, the Rustic Inn in Las Feliz. Okay. Uh, well, we've got quite a few. Yeah, that's a good list. All right. Uh... Oh, the, the Dresden Room, the bar of the Dresden Room in... Uh, in Hollywood, and also the bar of the uh, Tay Restaurant and the Tam O'Shanter mm. in uh, uh, Atwater. Oh, okay. Glendale Atwater, yeah. Uh, Matt, uh, Matt Damon's, not Matt Damon's, gosh, Damon's in Glendale. Mm. All right. Uh, 
Daniel says, good evening, Vincent and Charles, and a Merry Christmas and Epiphany tied to you both. Uh, before asking my questions, I wanted to clarify a question I sent many weeks ago regarding scotism, Thomism, and the absolute primacy of Christ. The way I understand the scotistic view can be most simply explained as asserting that the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity was the first thing God willed outside of himself, and therefore all of creation, beginning with the Blessed Virgin Mary, was filled for the sake of the incarnation. This, therefore, asserts that Christ was destined to become incarnate whether or not Adam and Eve sinned. This doesn't conflict with the famous lines, quote, O happy fault which gained us such a redeemer, end quote, uh, because of that last word, redeemer. If Adam had not sinned, God the Son would still have become the God-man and been our eternal high priest and king. But because of Adam's sin, he therefore also became our redeemer. That's my basic understanding in a nutshell. Charles would like to comment. Please do so. Well, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, I, I. What can I say? I wasn't there, and I don't know. Uh, but it certainly is a plausible supposition. Uh, I'm not much of an abstract thinker, to be honest with you. You're getting um, you're getting your master's in theology, okay, Mister Theologian. Cook me up th- some theology. See, having <laughs> a degree in theology gives you the right to talk smack that you don't have. Okay. Well, I, okay, I, I totally agree with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In other words, well, do your job rather though. than rather than forcing me to give theological judgments. It just allows me to shoot yours down. <laughs> Is that what you're in it for? That's why you've been here yep. in Austria the whole time? You just want to shoot people down? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. License to talk smack. So you have no so you don't have any interest in theology. You just want you just want the, oh, the I, license. I have an enormous interest in theology. It's just that um how do I put it? I'm not much interested in theological speculation unless it gets to the point where it contradicts one of the creeds. The operative thing here is he points out how Scotus does not contradict what is is infallible. And so within those boundaries, it's quite permissible. Hmm. Someone might make the argument uh, that he would not have been incarnate Otherwise, that's fine too, as long as you're not denying the creed. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'll put this another way. I am not by nature a determined member of uh, one of the philosophical schools. You'd have to call me an ultra realist, I suppose. But beyond that, uh, even where I might disagree with St. Thomas, if it's not a matter of dogma, like, say, the Immaculate Conception, my own problems with him aren't that big a deal. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, of course, the work that he did was so valuable 
just like the work that Duns Scotus did, the work that St. Bonaventure did, St. Augustine, of course, my master. Um, as I've said before, they all sort of act as correctives on each other with the magisterium and the creeds to keep them in line. That's why I think one of the best papal pronouncements ever was silencing both the Jesuits and the Dominicans when they started to get crazy, fighting over grace versus free will. That was just perfect. You know, shut up because we can't know the side of the grave. Mouths closed. Stop lacking charity and do your thing. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant decision. What Pope? Don't remember. Clement the 11th? I don't know. I will tell you. I'm going to go to Wikipedia, source of all truth. Okay. You know what it's like getting older? Hmm? Have you any idea? Yes. No, you don't. You're lying. I I age. I am no, not. No, you haven't aged. I'm not a vampire. You, you look to me the way you did when you were six years old. Wow. My. My eye, uh, you know, my eyesight is a little bit. Uh, let's see. Oh, it's Clement the Eighth, not the Eleventh. Mm. My mistake. There you go. All right, now you know. All right. Uh, moving on to Boethius. Um, okay. So uh, Daniel says um, a, que- a question about the sixth century philosopher Boethius a friend gave me a book about him but after doing a brief online search I couldn't determine whether the Catholic Church views him as orthodox or not seems like his writings used to be very influential and that in his local diocese he has a feast day on October 23rd but he isn't in my Roman martyrology and it seemed odd that if he was as big of a deal as his Wikipedia article claims he wouldn't be canonized or more widely spoken of. I hope Charles can tell me all that he knows about Boethius, whether he is worth reading, and whether I need to be wary of heterodoxy. He's very much worth reading. You need not worry about heterodoxy. He is a blessed. He's not in the Roman martyrology, but there are a number of blessed who aren't. My own patron, whose feast day this is, Blessed Charlemagne, is not in the martyrology. And uh, St. Clement of Alexandria, and I say saint because Benedict XVI called him saint, uh, was actually taken out of the martyrology by Benedict XIV. So the martyrology is not infallible. Um, It's useful. It's more than useful, but it's not infallible. So I really wouldn't worry about it on that score. If the church permits a cultus, that's all you need. Okay. Well, Remember the moder- the martyrology is specifically the martyrology of Rome, even though it's got sort of a universal grip. So there are a number of local saints and blesseds who don't appear in it. I see. All right. Um, now he says, uh, jumping from the 6th century to the early 20th century, I recently became aware of some of the works of Oswald Spengler, the German historian and philosopher. I'd like to know if Charles is familiar with him and his writings, and if so, 
please ask him to share his opinion on Spengler's historical and cultural analyses. The man was not Catholic and holds certain views that I don't think Catholics can hold. But in my opinion, he has some interesting insights to the situation we find ourselves in now, nearly 100 years after his death. Well, I agree. I agree. Uh, Spengler's Untergang des Abendlandes, the decline of the West, is worth reading. As you say, he has some views which you can't really hold as a Catholic, and that, of course, because he was a Protestant. So he had a much more, for instance, favorable view of the Reformation than one should have. But he did see quite clearly the analogy between the decline of individuals and the decline of civilizations. I don't believe it was quite it is quite as predestined as he would make it out to be. That it's, you know, as human beings go through birth, youth, age, and death, so he sees it irrevocable that civilizations do also. I don't believe that's true, but I do believe he has a lot to say with pondering. He was also a very snappy dresser, I have to say. He dressed extremely well. And if that weren't enough, he has a quote that I've always really enjoyed. It is, if one has the chance to annoy someone, one should do so. <laughs> That's so you. Well, no, I'm quoting Spengler. All right. Um, I'll also reference... Um, so we actually did, um, we took a question on Oswald Spengler before, um, several years ago, uh, and I actually yeah. turned it into a, a little video of its own. Um, it's called Oswald uh, Spengler and the Alt-Right, uh, because um, someone had asked a, a question. The right or- yeah, uh, the, 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 he's talking about decline of the West, and is this the main ideology of the Alt-Right? Because um, it seems like Spengler is getting popular now in that sense. Um, so that's actually a 15-minute video uh, talking entirely about uh, Spengler. So I do recommend that because I thought Charles did uh, um, really an insightful analysis on that video. Uh, so, and yeah. uh, if, I, if I may, I'd like to send you right now another picture of Spengler. You tell me if that isn't a snappy dress. Okay. Um, just give me a second. Um, you really put me under the gun here. Um, get it. All right. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see what we got here. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, very nice dress. Or a very nice suit, excuse me. Um, yeah. yeah. Very snappily dressed, good wing collar mounting firmly to his chin, in the words of T.S. Eliot. Uh, very well dressed. Snappy dresser was Oswald Schmengler. He looks so angry, though. He, he, he was angry. He was very he, upset. He was, he was well, an unhappy person. Was he? That's why he enjoyed annoying people so much. <laughs> well, that explains it. Well, yeah, that's why I said if you have a chance, if one has a chance to annoy, to annoy someone, one should take advantage <laughs> of it. And I, I you know, I, I don't share it entirely, of course. But on the other hand, I can understand his motivation. 
it's a form of self-expression. And as we know today, self-expression is everything. Hmm. All right. Or so they tell us. Has anyone uh, registered complaints about the the departure of the magic pile? No, no. Nobody has seemed to notice. I don't know. I think everyone's kind of being kind and knows that your situation has changed a lot with the, the illness and, and this and that. So just assume you're... Oh, do you, do you, why don't you put some books on that, Charles? Get some nice books there, you know? I, I think there's an insult in there someplace, you just told me. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're you're just so I, weak I and vaguely. old and just, you know, people just pity you. Okay, now it's coming to the top. <laughs> it's rising to the top. It's becoming clearer. <laughs> do you really want me to reread the history no. of Let There Be Peace on Earth No, again? don't do that again, please. Do you really um, want me to do that? Please don't do that. I could, you know. I've got it right here. I could reread it. Uh, no, I'll be good. Have you have you lost sight of the fact that that, that that a plea for peace came from the hearts of teenagers gathered together to sing a song of peace in the mountains of California? In 1955, it was a retreat that gathered young people of many different racial, religious, and economic backgrounds to explore their commonness and their brokenness and to find together a commonality that transcended all their differences. In the words of your mom... See, I can, I can do this, too. In the words of, of your mom, so now we punish. Or a, <laughs> <laughs> That's what that was. That's exactly yes, what that was. was. So, so now we punish. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That was one of, that was a great line. That was her response to anything, any response you had to what she said. It was the slightest bit angry, no matter how annoying she had been. Yeah. Oh, I see. Now we punish. And then what could you say to that? So you just saved yourself. That was a good serve. You were going to get a lot more garbage like that, but you just saved yourself. Oh, uh, good. You know, two minutes of, of, of drivel. I could have handed it to you. Though. I know you, know, you could It's right up here. I know. You, you've it's got... between these years. Okay, I'll be good. I, I could, could instigate a little bit more, but for the sake of myself, I'm, I'm going to withdraw. All There's right. 60 years of countercultural crap wrapped up in this head. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you about the human potential movement or the need for all of us to somehow reach down deep within ourselves and bring to the surface the tools that all of us need for exploring this adventure we call life. I could do that, you know, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to subject you or the audience to that. Well done. I, uh, let, I we'll, we'll pin a medal on you. <laughs> you should. I deserve one for, for my restraint. You know, I, I, I suddenly I'm 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 thinking of uh, the Est seminars, the Earhart seminar trainings. It was this fellow called Werner Earhart, and it was big in the '60s and '70s. And basically, he would gather people together for a weekend at some hotel or other, and berate them. And they paid big bucks for this, like nine hundred dollars a pop. I made a lot of money, 
and people would come out of this self-inflicted ordeal as though they'd done something. Well, there was a character in on Venice Beach in those days by the name of Swami X. And I'll never forget his response to S training. He said, Van uh, Earhart will take 900 bucks out of you to take you to a hotel for, for a weekend and tell you what a piece of crap you are. I'll do the same thing for 30 bucks in food stamps. Wow. That's strange. I wonder. Well, he was offering a cheap deal. Yeah. No, I mean, that's good. Absolutely. Um, no, it's called I, undercutting, you know. I just don't understand why someone would pay for that at all. People, uh, unlike today when everyone's brilliant, back then people were stupid. Oh, okay. I understand. Go on and say it. You know you want to. Go and say it. Okay, Boomer. I knew it. I knew you wanted to. All right. So we're wrapping up. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, We'll see you here on YouTube next week. But also all week long on our radio broadcasting and podcasting partners, the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. Which comes to you out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm. Despite what you may have heard, Mike Church is not the literary heir of Tennessee Williams. Wow. Okay. Well, that settles that. Thank you for clearing that up for me, Charles. There's been some question, but it's not true. He has he had nothing to do with any of it. But um, another question for you: What if it's sure. it, What if it? What is it if it's Monday? It's off the menu. And what about the soul you save? It may, and I can say this after due consideration. It may very well be your own. Hmm. I'll do it. See you next God bless time. You all. Righto.